uncivilized, illegal invader. Since 2015, there's been a worsening rhetoric around seeking asylum in the UK, with successive home secretaries and prime ministers vilifying those seeking sanctuary to cover up their own political failures. In this episode, we talk to Kay Siddiqui, a prominent human rights solicitor whose recent work includes working on the ongoing Rwanda litigation and Afghan relocation and assistance policy challenges. He also happens to be a former refugee. We talk about Kaysa's personal journey, myths around seeking asylum, and how to create a more efficient and welcoming asylum system. Welcome to the second episode of More Than a Statistic, a podcast by Our World 2. And for today's episode, we're joined by the incredible Kay Siddiqui, who is a human rights lawyer here in the UK. And I'm just going to pass the mic now to Case to let him introduce himself. Hello. Hi. Thank you, Hira, for having me. Um, just to start off quickly, I we, everyone knows about your incredible activism on social media and at protests. But I want to know a little bit more like about what led to your activism and kind of what led you to become a human rights lawyer and be so passionate about the rights of hu- asylum seekers and refugees. Well, with that, we have to go way back um, because all my life, uh, even before I was born, uh, my family has been involved in some sort of way in the refugee world or the asylum world um, because my parents are originally from Afghanistan and they had to move to Pakistan um, following the Cold War in the 80s. And um and I was born in Pakistan in uh, in, in uh, sorry Peshawar. Uh, that's where I was born. Uh, my father moved to the Netherlands, where he claimed political asylum. And then shortly after that, when I was around three years old, we joined him. I don't know whether it was under a family reunion or anything. I'm not sure, but we joined him. And uh, following that, there were there were some issues. My mom separated and divorced my father. So. Um, uh, following which we lived in the refugee camp and uh, for for a while I would say uh, for around a year or so we lived in a refugee camp so um, f- following which we lived in Holland for 11 years and then I moved to the UK when I was 14 years old uh, so I've, I've, I've kind of been involved in the immigration world without um, w- without even having a choice basically but I've learned throughout my journey that um, this is something I'm passionate about and um, having having experienced it myself, uh, being from a ref- former refugee myself. And it's important for me to send that message um, to other people who are going through a similar or the same process that I went through. Even though I my family claimed asylum in the Netherlands, it's still pretty much the same sort of um, process that people need to go through. So for me, um, it's it's like I want to send a message of hope and positivity to individuals who are going through what I'm going through or the little Kezas that are out there who are probably um, going through the asylum or immigration system who need to hear this because I didn't have this when I when growing up um, and possibly needed this uh, growing up because I have faced a lot of discrimination, racism, everything uh, growing up, and uh, to 
to have someone telling me that it's going to be okay. Look at me, I made it. Um, you can also make it. Um, it's it's important, and sometimes you do need to hear that. So, um, uh, yeah, that's that's how I basically got in, involved in this activism and um, getting this message across of hope and uh, um, and basically uh, positivity. Thank you so much for explaining more about your background. And you mentioned you kind of been kind of involved with migration since even before you were born. How was the reception in various the various countries you've been through to in Pakistan, in the Netherlands versus the UK? Was there like an immediate sense of you were different or was were some countries more welcoming than others? Um, well, in pa- Pakistan, I can't remember much because I was very young. I was around three years old. Um, but in the Netherlands, I gr- go having, uh, I, w- I, w- I basically grew up uh, in the south of the Netherlands. It's called, the province is called Limburg. Um, that's where I grew up. And uh, statistically speaking, it is a majority of white uh, Dutch uh, people in in the community I grew up in in Helen. Um so growing up in that sort of environment in the um, late 90s early 2000s um, it was it, it, it was um, pre 9-11 it was a bit more tolerant I would say there wasn't much Islamophobia or racism going on but people did give us strange and weird stares as to uh because my mom wears a hijab she wears a headscarf so uh and my sister as well when um since she was little so people would stare at them like what is going on um and asking weird questions we, we had a lady go up to my mom and asking her a friend in a friendly way asking her um are you going through chemotherapy or something are you bold underneath is that why you're trying to hide your head um, and then my mom had to explain, no, this is my religion. My religion teaches me to cover myself modestly and things like that. So people were unaware. But then we saw a drastic change following 9-11. That's when it became more uh, hatred. It became it, it evolved from curiosity to hatred. Um, where, as before, people were curious as to why uh, you looked a certain way. But then um, after 9-11 was more, much more hatred, uh, overt hatred, I, hate, uh, I would say, and uh, discrimination. Uh, but it was still, nonetheless, it was discrimination and racism. Um, I would see, um, like, f- uh, friends not talking to me in school or trying not to associate with me um, to people throwing like um, racist remarks at, at my mother and my sister and myself um, saying really nasty things to us um, and there was a point where my my mum and my sister especially uh, they were they were really afraid for their lives um, because there were so many attacks happening um, everywhere on on Muslims so um, so that that was it was a horrible period to go through as a child and um, I would say quite traumatic. Um, but yeah, so that happened in the Netherlands. But then 
as people started to um, to understand more and, and me trying to have this calm demeanor um, about everything, about the whole situation and trying to explain in a very calm manner uh, as to what I represent, what I am, um, people were more um, alert to it um, and they were more sort of understanding, I would say. Um, but there was obviously a, a period where, um, where, as I said, uh, we feared for our lives and uh, it, it wasn't a very pleasant sort of environment to be growing up in. And uh, my mother was did an amazing job um, in hiding all of that from me uh, and not trying to involve me too much into that side of, of the community um, and telling me that it's going to be okay and making sure that I was fine um, and trying to comfort me. So my mother played a huge role in in trying to uh, shield me from from that sort of abuse um but when at times when she wasn't there with me in school and stuff like that i would still experience it um and so yeah that that did happen in, in the netherlands and then coming to the uk um it it was a bit strange um because as i said in the netherlands uh, we were possibly like one of the very few brown families in our community most of them were uh, white dutch nationals or people um so coming to the uk because i live in the west west london uh, it was the complete opposite it was uh majority of the people over here are brown skinned so similar to me and um there there's there's not many um white people in my area um so it was a complete opposite to what I was used to in the Netherlands. Um, but thankfully, I haven't faced much racism in the UK. Um, maybe it's because of the part of London I'm from, or I'm not sure what it is, but I've, I haven't experienced any sort of racism or discrimination, direct discrimination, I would say. Um, obviously, you get the odd person shouting abuse at you um, and things like that. Um, but I personally haven't experienced, uh, experienced something like that. Um, but coming to that topic is a bit, it's a bit coincidental because a couple of months ago, actually, my mother was uh, racially abused um, uh, with ra racial remarks being thrown at her. Um, but, but that's like the first time that it happened uh, in the our 16 odd years that we've been in the UK. Um, but, but yeah, so generally speaking in the Netherlands in the early, uh, in the late nineties, early two thousands, there was a bit of friction between the uh, Muslim community. Well, between us being Muslims and, and the sort of community I grew up in, but then slowly and gradually um, it, it became less worse um, but it wasn't completely eliminated, if you know what I mean. And then uh, in the UK, I, uh, as I said, I haven't experienced anything myself, any sort of uh, racism or discrimination. Uh, uh, of course, on social media, you you do get uh, a lot of abuse thrown at you, but um, but like physically, no, um, I haven't. I can't say I have. Thank you, and. It must have been incredible, incredibly difficult to go through that as a child and kind of just learning more about the world and being made to feel like you were different. 
but I'm also happy to hear that since coming to the UK, it's lessened somewhat. Um, but just quickly on that comment you made around social media, I've seen some of the comments you've shared about the racist abuse and the hate you do get. Mm -hmm. And I think you have handled it incredibly gracefully and you respond in a, a very measured responses, to be honest. And I feel that it goes a long way, to be honest, mm -hmm. to well, I, I, perceptions, to be honest. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, it comes down to like, how i've been grow how i've been raised by my mother um and what my i don't want to go all like <laughs> as the people call it islamifying you or like <laughs> i mean or the or the listeners or whatever but this is what my religion teaches me and this is how i've been raised um is to not throw abuse i throw shade here here and there but like not full-on abusing someone or um or discriminating or uh, or anything like that uh but that's just how i've been raised and um it's important for me to um do uh, to address it in that way because otherwise what's the difference between me and the abuser nothing so i have to uh basically reel myself in um, and how I actually feel. But um, I mean, it's important for me to send that message across as you can get your opinions across and, and getting your message across to someone without having to belittling them or um, discriminating them or racially abusing them. So th there is that option for you. But no, the far right choose not to do that and completely ignore you. Uh, I, don't, I mean, I've been told that, that they're all bots and I presume that that is the case. And I've tried to be uh, to reason with them in, in certain scenarios where I've tried to explain to them their queries, but it just falls on deaf ears. Um, so I've just, uh, I mean, I've... Um, I've gotten used to the to the block button, I would say. So I've just been blocking left, right, center because it's just a waste of time. It's not worth it. And it's it's so incredibly, it's heartbreaking really to see people who have lived experience of displacement like yourself and like others experience increased hostility in online spaces or outside because of the negative rhetoric and all the policies and illegal immigration bills being pushed forward by the Tory government. Mm -hmm. And just since they've come into power, it's been a continuous patrol against asylum seekers. They're coming to invade. They're going to, they're coming in small boats. You won't be able to claim asylum and just mm -hmm. basically breaking international law and threatening to pull out of things like the ECHR mm -hmm. and it's incredibly disheartening to see this, but uh, I saw the protest this weekend, that, this weekend, this week you were a part of, and mm -hmm. I heard your speech, and I think it was incredibly moving, and Thank this you. is kind of what needs to happen. We need to hear from the people affected, affected themselves, and not from people who make policies in a vacuum, mm -hmm. and just kind of going into this a little bit more, given the hostile rhetoric right now, given the vitriol that's being pushed out by politicians, by the media, what, in your opinion, are the top three myths kind of related to seeking asylum? Top three myths are, um, well, one of the main ones is, uh, why are they fleeing? Uh, why are they uh, fleeing persecution in France? Why can't they stay there? That's the main one. Um, and to address that point, the, the fact that people are escaping or like um, don't want to stay in France is, is, is rather easy. Um, either 
they're trafficked, so they have no control of their journey of how they travel or which countries they go through. And uh, it might be surprising to some people, but uh, a lot of young men are trafficked. Um, if you, because these, these, these traffickers, they operate in a group. It's not just one person, uh, person just telling someone, oh, I'm, I'm trafficking you. No, it's a, it's a group, um, group that, that basically, um, has control over someone. So they have uh, weapons, they, uh, abuse them mentally, physically, emotionally, they abuse them. They literally break them down. Um, to a level where uh, they're just a blank canvas, and they the, the traffickers can control them however they want, and they they're, they're the ones pulling the strings. Um, and to throw in the fact that they're escaping or fleeing persecution from their own country, and uh, and being told, oh, if you don't follow what we're saying, you can be returned back. Uh, you're going to be returned there. So. That they're taking advantage of these vulnerable individuals, understanding what they're going through, and and using that against them. So the, the, these traffickers are very manipulative, and people underestimate them, um, saying that oh, you, why can't they just escape? It's not that easy. If you have a gun pointed in, in your face and telling you move along, or I'm going to shoot you, it's it, it's difficult. And I've heard stories of that, um, or individuals saying why. Um, why are they going on the boat? Well, many of my clients have actually told me the traffickers are forcing them to carry the boats onto the shore and pointing a gun in their face, telling them, get on, or I'm going to shoot you here and there. Um, because they have they have these transactional deals. With tra- traffickers have deals amongst themselves. So trafficker who's in France or whatever, they don't get paid until they cross over to the traffickers in England um, across the shore. So there, there is that. Um, and this is real. People are victims of this sort of behavior and people don't understand this. Um, and, and on the back of that, um, people are saying, well, if, if they're trafficked um, and, and they've come to the UK, surely they want to go back to their own country. No, that's not how it works. Um, many asylum seekers are trafficked in the country that they're fleeing from. Uh, as, as a way of example, Albania, um, there's many victims of trafficking in Albania, women, children, men uh, who are victims of that. Um, and it, they're trafficked in Albania themselves, especially women who are um, who are um, basically sex trafficked within Albania or other countries. So um, usually a majority of the time by Albanians, Albanians themselves. So um, they have uh, they have a boyfriend who um, who turns out not to be a boyfriend and turns out to be a, a sex trafficker, uh, lures them in. So classic trafficking strategies for them to groom these women or men or whatever um so when they do come to the uk the the last thing they want to do is go back to albania because they fear that they're going to fall into the hands of these albanian traffickers who are very well connected uh, and they um they operate on a very large scheme within albania and um so the last thing they would want to do is to go back and uh, uh, and for those individuals tracking them down and re-traffic them so um 
that that's what that's what happens with the majority of these um, victims of trafficking from Vietnam, Iran, or all these other countries where majority of the time the traffickers are from the country where they're fleeing from. And if they are returned to that country, they, there's a high potentiality of them being re-trafficked. So that's the, sorry if I'm waffling for too long, but um, I think it's important to get these messages across so that um, so that people can really understand um, the, the sort of, the sort of uh, uh, rhetoric and the narrative behind all of this, because they're, they're blurting out BS and uh, without understanding what actually is involved. And as I said, uh, I... I deal with these types of cases day in, day out, speaking to many victims, speaking, my clients, majority of them are going through this process. So I can speak, um, speak on this topic and other people who Bob, who's heard from, on Twitter that from Sandy uh, posting about this is irrelevant. <laughs> so I think that, um, that is important for, uh, for people who have, um, who have experience dealing with these types of people to get this message across. Um, so that's one of the myths. Um, the other myth I would say is that um, why are they putting their lives at risk um, by, uh, by crossing through the channel and getting on these boats or these dinghies? If it was, if, if there was a safe legal route, which we, God knows uh, how long we've been lobbying and advocating for this, if there were safe legal routes, why would someone risk their life, their family's lives um, to cross through the channel? And we've seen uh, numerous tragedies and uh, loss of life uh, in these channels throughout the years. Why would anybody want to put themselves through that? Because there are no safe, safe legal routes. The only safe legal routes at the moment are the Ukraine scheme, and the um, limited Afghan schemes uh, that are available. And I say limited because it's not available to everyone. And I'll come come to that in a bit. Uh, with the Ukraine scheme, we've seen how successful that's been. Over 150,000 Ukrainians rightfully have been, um, uh, have been granted visas to enter the UK and live here and uh, and work and, uh, and and basically do any uh, do everything. And we've seen how productive and uh, and uh, efficient that system has been. Um, so, and, I, and I'm completely for it. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, with Afghan nationals, it's a complete opposite. There was this, on the since the Taliban offensive, offensive on the 15th of August, um, there's uh, uh, the, the, the uh, Operation Pitting. During that process, many Afghans, uh, managed to flee. The calculation from the top of my head, I believe, is around seven to eight thousand people managed to be evacuated under Operation Pitting, which is what it was called. Um, and then before that, there was the um, and still there is the uh, Arab scheme, which is the Afghan relocation and assistance policy. But that's only for individuals who have served the British forces, um, so it's not available to everyone. And um, I'm dealing with quite a lot of these applications, um, former interpreters, particularly former Afghan interpreters who have interpreted for the British forces during the war. Um, 
and who have been refused on the basis that they're national security risk by the Home Office. But that's a whole different topic. Uh, and there's so many sort of shortcomings and uh, shortcomings involved in the, in the Arab scheme itself. It's not as straightforward as the Ukraine scheme where you can just show your Ukrainian passport and you, you get uh, you can hop on a plane and come to the UK. The Afghan schemes are not that simple. Um, the other scheme that's available to Afghans is the ACRS, the Afghan Citizens Resettlement Scheme. And the Home Office themselves have actually confirmed that only, um, again, from the top of my head, I believe it's around 5,000 people um, will resettle in the first year um, and 20,000 Afghans will be resettled in in five years. Um, so that's the figures that we're working with. Look at 150,000 people, Ukrainians, to 20,000 in five years. Uh, big difference. So... And at the moment, only very, very limited people have actually benefit from the, uh, benefited from the um, Afghan citizens relocation scheme uh, around, I believe, it's less than a thousand people. So they've not even been able to commit to that. So they're saying that, oh, in Operation Pitting, we brought so many people, they're counted towards that figure as well. Uh, no, that's not how it works. Anyway, I, I'm. I think I'm waffling, but no, no, don't worry about those it. Are, think... those, yeah, those are the two schemes that are the safe legal routes available to Afghans and Ukrainians. Um, okay, what if I am Sudanese? What if I'm Iranian? What if I'm from Egypt? What if I'm from any other country except those two? Um, how can I claim asylum in the UK? And the immigration rules dictate that the only way you can claim asylum in the UK is if you're on UK soil. We're an island. We're not landlocked into any other country, European countries. We're an island. So how else do you expect someone to come to the UK? They, the immigration rules are, are very strict uh, in coming to the UK. You can't apply for a visit visa to come to the UK and claim asylum because that would be uh, uh, that you you basically can't do that because that's, uh, as part of the application you have to confirm that you're not that you're here only for visiting purposes not to claim asylum or anything like that so you're essentially deceiving the system if you are applying for a visitor visa but in essence you want to claim asylum so you can't deceive the system um so how else are you are, are people supposed to come over here they can't come by plane as explained uh, because they they won't be granted visas and can't pass border control when they come to the to an airport um they they can't go they can't come by car on 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 boats or something like that um legal legal boats i mean not the dinghies so how else are you are people expected to come over here um it's we need more safe legal routes just like the ukraine scheme and the limited afghan uh, schemes that are available to individuals and we've seen how efficient that's been with the Ukrainians. We've managed to bring hundred over 150,000 Ukrainians to the UK in around a year because the war started around a year ago. So we've managed to bring 150,000 people is a lot of people. We've managed to bring all of them over here, providing with housing, providing with care, providing with the basic necessities, with everything. So that's possible. Why can't we do... Uh, do that on a on a smaller scale um, with other nationalities. Why, why is that not a possibility? Um, so there's that. Uh, there's that. Um, the other um, other myth I would say is um, I can't think of any at the moment. But um, 
I mean, if if you know of any, then then by all means you can mention it. But I'm sure it can be debunked uh, the, that myth as well. Uh, but those are the two main ones um, that people assume um, and 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 basically uh, say tell me or post about a lot on my posts. And I think it's very important to address those points um, uh, from a legal and professional perspective. Well, thank you so much for your insights. And just to reiterate, absolutely no waffling was done by you. <laughs> Incredible <laughs> insights. Thank you so much. But just to echo some of kind of what you said, you've kind of touched upon a kind of a lot that's wrong with the asylum system and a lot, yeah. a lot that's kind of the rhetoric around seeking asylum. And one of the, the biggest ones like kind of I've seen in my professional career is kind of the myth that men can't be refugees mm. or the fact they are somehow less deserving of being refugees and this notion that they should have stayed to fight but then if you've seen your family die if you've seen your house been destroyed multiple times if you've had to face displacement maybe multiple times and it's so hopeless that you just want to leave people need to understand that that mm -hmm. sometimes it's very easy to be removed from a situation and to pass judgment on people's decisions. But mm -hmm. unless you speak to them as a human being without prejudice, it's very hard to understand someone. Mm -hmm. And it's just, and even when people talk about kind of going back, it's a very personal decision for some. Yes, maybe they are looking to go back. Maybe they want to go and rebuild, but for others, there's so much trauma associated with a, car, a particular space or there's no infrastructure left. Like we can look at Libya, we can look at Iraq, yeah. we can look at Syria now. Like if the war was to stop tomorrow, there's no infrastructure. You can't go back and have a semi-stable life or any sort of stability. Mm -hmm. And I think there's just a lack of understanding around that. And just kind of even touching upon the Homes for Ukraine scheme, it's, um, it's just, I don't, around being a refugee, around being an asylum seeker. And while I 100% agree, all refugees, regardless of where they're from, deserve safe routes. And to access asylum, we've just seen a level of hierarchy, a level of hierarchy of lives, of where you come from, and the level of respect you're given versus kind of, if you're from somewhere else, your religion, your skin color, your or where you're from should never dictate your worth when you're seeking asylum mm -hmm. and that in itself is so discriminatory and against what even the 1951 refugee convention kind of highlights mm -hmm. that it's it's astounding when people try to justify it using the convention you're like no this is not legal <laughs> like i don't know how to tell you this but it's yeah. not legal we have to call a spade a spade uh, it's exactly. discrimination uh it's discrimination i mean uh, it, it's just discrimination. That's all I can say about it. I mean, just because, um, uh, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not basically saying that Ukrainians shouldn't be, shouldn't come to the UK. They're entitled to it, and they should rightfully be relocated in the UK. But why can't other nationalities be given the same sort of exactly. um, treatment? Um, why? It, shouldn't, it should be everyone should have the same rights as a refugee, regardless of where you're from. And yeah. it's just, if you see the rhetoric, even across Europe, you're going to have some countries that are blatantly saying, like Hungary, under mm -hmm. Viktor Orban, saying, oh, we only want Christian refugees. Well, tough. If you sign the refugee convention, like they, there is no ground for this. And it's blatant Islamophobia in some cases. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. The, um, 
coming back actually like something else popped into my mind as well is the fact that uh, under this new uh, illegal migration bill that was announced last week and uh, they're saying that they should claim asylum in the first safe country um nowhere in the 1951 refugee convention does it say that they have to do that um they don't have to claim asylum in the first safe country um and the um it, it, yeah. So it's 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 not a, it's not a legal right of theirs. To, to, uh, they don't have to do that. They can travel through other countries and 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 uh, claim asylum in any of the countries. So, um, but in any event, even if they come over here under the illegal migration bill as well, uh, where are they going to be sent to? That's my question. Where are they going to be sent to? If we look at it, say, for example, someone from Iran comes here, um, if the illegal migration bill, which um, uh, which I hope it won't. Uh, if if it receives royal assent and becomes and it becomes law, if someone comes to the UK as an Iranian national, they're immediately detained. No questions asked. They're detained for twenty eight days, right? Um, you they can't apply for bail. They can only apply for bail 21, 28 days after they have arrived, and they um, they cannot access the uh, modern slavery system that that we have in place. Um, so they're being restricted from that. So imagine all the victims who are uh, already traumatized and then being told about this. Uh, and I can already foretell that the traffickers, before they even come to the UK, uh, pointing at the policy saying, look, if you go to the UK, you can't access it. Um, so you have to do what we're telling you. We still have control over you. So um, so there's that. They can't access the um, modern slavery system. Uh, they can't apply for bail for 28 days. Um, bearing in mind that they've travelled a perilous and treacherous sort of um, journey to cut, to get to the UK, and so and with no sort of end goal in sight, um, they can't be sent back to Iran because that's the country they're fleeing from. Uh, it will be in uh, contravention to the Refugee Convention. They can't be sent to a European country. Because of Brexit, we were no longer part of the Dublin Three. Reg- the Dublin Three regulation has been repealed, and we no longer have access to the Eurodac database, which was the database which, uh, um, which uh, basically we could we could tell which countries a person had travelled through, and then pass pass it over to that country uh, where they travelled through first, and they can't be sent to Rwanda. Because the litigations, which I'm part of, uh, the ongoing litigation is ongoing, so they can't be removed there. Uh, funny thing about that, um, Rwanda litigation was introduced under the Nationality and Borders Act 2022 last year, tw- received royal assent on the 28th of April. Uh, nearly a year down the line, zero people have been returned to Rwanda. How embarrassing is that? Um, and then they're trying to push this new bill uh, which is similar, but a more evil sister of the Nationality and Borders Act 2022. Um, so a year down the line, and now they've actually, the sort of um, internal advisors of the Home of, uh, Home Office have concluded that realistically uh, nobody can be removed until uh, March 2024. So that's two years after it received royal assent. But in any event, I'm waffling now. But um, it's so so they they... The, they can't be removed to Rwanda because that that's still ongoing, and we've got a hearing next month at the Court of Appeal, uh, following which there's going to be a long legal challenge 
Supreme Court, European, uh, European Court of Human Rights, possibly. So it's going to be a long and tedious process. Um, but m- my question is, where are they going to be returned, removed to and why 28 days? What are they going to do in, for 28 days before they can apply for bail uh, and before you consider whether the, uh, you're going to, the Home Office is going to consider their asylum claims in the UK? Because what they're basically saying is anybody who cro- comes to the UK illegally by boat, um, their cases are going to be inadmissible, meaning that they can't claim asylum in the UK and they have to be mm. removed um, to uh, another country that takes responsibility for it. But we've already explored those options. Um, but yeah, so there's that. So they're going to be kept in limbo, right? They're going to be kept in limbo in the detention center. And then all these other people are basically uh, saying, you're a waste of taxpayers' money. You're costing so much. What is that poor person meant to do? He can't go anywhere. The The law dictates mm. that. So you are keeping them in, in limbo and you are basically um, fighting for this bill to to pass um, for for people to be kept in limbo and for them to be a strain, a quote unquote, to be a strain on the on taxpayers and the public purse. Uh, so you are advocating for all of that. Um, and they're saying that at the moment, the asylum seekers are costing the uh, taxpayers six million pounds a, uh, a day. Um, um, and, the, and I believe it's two billion pounds a year or something like that. Um, uh, the asylum seekers are costing them. But we have to look at the bigger picture. Um, why are they costing us that much? Um, and I've explained this before on other uh, platforms. There's asylum, there's individuals coming to me for advice now in 2023 telling me that their asylum claims have been outstanding since 2015 eight years ago um they've not been invited for an uh, for a substantive asylum interview which is the second stage of the asylum interview following the screening interview um but yeah so eight years they've been kept in limbo and been a uh, quote-unquote strain on the public purse and taxpayers so we have to clear the backlog. We have to look at that. The Home Office can talk about, oh, um, these these uh, illegal mi- uh, migrants uh, are coming over here and invading our country or whatever and whatnot. But what are you actually doing? They're trying to distract us from the fact that there's a huge backlog and she's not doing anything about it. And nothing has been done for the past yeah. few years. So uh, she's trying to distract everyone from that and basically saying, look, we're doing this now, um, but forget about what we're not doing so to speak um so she's adding more pressure and more expenses on 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 the taxpayers and and uh and public expenses uh rather than actually tackling and um, and resolving the issue at hand which is to clear the backlog and creating safe legal routes um and you, you probably saw rishi sunak last week um, uh, um struck a deal with france um 480 pound uh, 480 million pound deal with them to essentially uh, detain individuals who cross uh, the English Channel to come to the UK by boat. Uh, So basically (laughs) uh, fobbing them off and basically saying, France, deal with it. We'll pay pay you, deal with it, uh, do whatever you want with them, keep them in detention. Uh, Basically, that's what the deal was about, Um, like uh, paying France to deal with our problem. If you know what I mean, which is no, which is ridiculous, uh, but yeah, in essence, so I, I don't want I don't want to waffle too much, but that's that's no, my no. sort of t- uh, two cents on it, two pence on it. No, no waffling being done, but it's yeah. just it's really sad that to be honest, or maybe not sad, it just kind of puts into context 
the entire Tory party leadership that in the last two years, we've had more immigration bills than we've had help for a cost of living crisis. Exactly. What exactly. does that say about us as a country? Obviously, they've messed up politically, and now they're just trying to cover it by scapegoating refugees and asylum seekers. And mm-hmm. it just comes down to the fact, what is their interpretation of a safe country? Because they thought Libya was safe. They signed yeah. multi-million pound deals with them. There's an active slave market, no working government, and essentially militias that act as coast guards. Yeah. There's funding militias in Africa to keep asylum seekers fleeing war and famine and climate change at bay so that they don't have to deal with them. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, yeah. like this is, you talk about human rights, you talk about Qatar, you criticize them extensively during the World Cup and you talk about migrant rights there. But when people try and call you out here, they're silenced. Gary Lineker, for example, was momentarily fired yeah. from the BBC before being reinstated. It's just hypocrisy. It's pure hypocrisy. It is and hypocrisy and, pe- and people are blind to it. They are. And it's also, I just thought of another myth that just kind of came to mind. It's about, I think I saw this more around the Nationality and Borders Bill, but destroying the business of traffickers and people smugglers. No, you're not destroying it. By making it harder for people to legally claim asylum, you're giving them business. You're pushing Mm. vulnerable people, children, into slavery, into being trafficked, into being maybe made into child soldiers somewhere else because so many child so many children who are migrants and asylum seekers they went missing yeah where is your duty of care to these children you talk about social working you talk about child protection rights and these kids just went missing yeah what happened whatever happened to those kids who were who who went missing in those hotels there was just one headline for one day about it and then we just shut up about it whatever happened to that um where what happened to those children's rights if 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 it's all uh, pro child uh, pro children and whatnot uh, whatever happened to those children because uh, yeah i haven't heard much about them in the news lately the, the only time it was that day that that was announced and then it went quiet all of a sudden uh why is there no public outrage for those children um is it because of the fact that they're asylum seekers nobody cares about them um or is there more uh, something more insidious behind it i'm not sure no it's definite important questions to ask but now just more of a in an ideal world situation so imagine you were the prime minister of the UK. What <laughs> what would safe and legal routes look like to you? And what would a welcoming asylum system look like to you? Well, to me, uh, as I explained earlier, I mean, the um, Ukraine scheme and the limited Afghan schemes that are available, they're, they're a sort of good starting point. Um, more countries should engage in that um, and uh, the the UK should involve more con- countries and uh, and essentially uh, bringing more of those the, more of the, more of that those type of policies into play uh, with more countries. Uh, obviously, there has to be a quota. We can't take on too many people. Um, but in essence, it's it, it's like. Um, it's because because obviously it might open floodgates um but in, like we should have more of those sort of systems in place uh the other thing is also we need to have like a um uh, like a center in calais or somewhere um available for individuals if they want to claim asylum to come to the uk they can go there and claim asylum uh, rather than having to cross 
the English Channel uh, to come to the UK illegally by boat and risking their lives. And many people have uh, drowned and uh, and died and sadly passed away. That's another sort of um, uh, that's another uh, scheme that can be introduced, but not this sort of um, penalizing, criminalizing, and uh, essentially uh, demonizing um, asylum seekers. Uh, by not giving them the right, the very right that the UK signed up for in, uh, in with the 1951 Refugee Convention, um, to uh, give uh, give these these asylum seekers the right to claim asylum in the UK, um, because that's essentially what what what's happening at the moment. Because as I explained, there are no safe legal routes available. There are no sort of uh, other opportunities available for people to come to the UK to claim asylum that we don't have um, a system wherein people can apply for a visa purely for the purposes of of claiming asylum um, to come to the UK and otherwise if you apply for any other uh, routes you're deceiving the system and you're deceiving um, the uh, the home office and which we don't want but on the other hand what what is there available for these individuals to come here legally, come here safely without um, deceiving um, and without having to risk their lives? Um, and there is none. And more more sort of uh, the narrative should be shifted on, on, on that question, what can be done. And uh, as I explained, there should be more safe legal routes. For example, uh, as I explained with the Ukraine and Afghan scheme and or uh, a facility in France available or a centre where people can claim asylum if they wish to come to the UK. Um, yeah, so th- that's what I think. The other thing I also want to mention is um, that that I basically derailed from in my initial response uh, is the fact that uh, why people come to the UK. Um, so that, as I explained, the first first point was the that people are trafficked. Um, and they have no control over their journey to come to the UK. So that's the first one. The second thing is also people have family in the UK. They might have uh, distant family or close family members in the UK. Wouldn't you, if you suffered uh, persecution or a traumatic journey, wouldn't you want to be with your family? Of course you would. So you would make every effort to come and be with together with your family. Um, so people have that um, have families and stuff in the UK. So they want to join them and uh, and uh, go through this sort of um, period, this uh, recovery period from everything that they've suffered from. Um, and what better way to do that with your family or uh, loved ones? So that's another thing. The other thing is also English is a universal language. Yeah. Anywhere you go, people speak English, people can understand, even if uh, most people can't understand it, you will find one person or at least uh, a few people who can understand and speak English. Um, if you go to France or Germany, it's difficult to do that. Um, there are limited people, uh, to, uh, there, there aren't that many people who can speak English or communicate with you and whatnot. So you would want to go to a country where majority of the people speak English. Um, so England is one of those countries. So that's why people would want to come over here um, to because they can speak the language, because 
another myth also I would add is the fact that not all asylum seekers are illiterate or uneducated or um, unprofessional, whatever. A lot of them are quite professional uh, and educated. I've had lecturers who are lecturers in their own countries claiming asylum. I've had doctors, engineers, dentists, uh, teachers, lawyers. I've had a lot of asylum seekers from those sort of professions come to the UK and they can be an asset and contribute to society, but no, they're being uh, uh, demonized for it. So, um, but in any event, so, so there's that. So they speak, so the language is another important aspect and factor why people would want to come to the UK. And the other point also is that um, there is a lack of support available for asylum seekers in in other countries, so um, and I know that in in for example, uh, especially for victims of trafficking or slavery or whatever it may be, there is limited um, uh, sort of uh, limited limited treatments available for them. For example, victims of trafficking they require um, quite a, many a, a lot of sessions therapy ther- therapy sessions with a, with a therapist or a psychiatrist to overcome the trauma that they have endured um, which is not available in certain countries but which is of critical importance to the recovery of a person um, and that there could be other so uh, like uh, many of, uh, of the clients that ha- uh, that I have um, that I'm dealing with who have traveled through these countries are saying that they just left um, without any sort of support, they they they're homeless. The majority, uh, most of the time, that they're in that country, they have no access to food. They have no access to um, to anything, basically healthcare. So they're literally left to rot. Um, and the, the, there's basically no difference between them being in the country where they're persecuted from and in in the country there uh, that they travel to. So there's that, and in the UK if they have the right sort of um, support available to them, they can have access to all of that and and finally be able to live in peace and um, have the right sort of support and treatment available to them and uh, into their road to recovery. Well, those are very important points. And just kind of touching upon kind of trauma and support, there are a lot of very good systems in place in the UK if people are, are allowed to access them. Mm-hmm. And I feel mental health is such an overlooked aspect of the entire displacement journey. And even if we talk more about, for example, intergenerational trauma, now I'm Pakistani, and yeah. the effects of intergenerational trauma from partition are still being felt literally 75 years after partition. Yeah. We're going to have, unless mental health is provided to people who are displaced you're going to see the effects of trauma of ptsd showing up three four generations from Mm -hmm. now and that should be on the offset just provided and kind of even talking about how english is a language i feel there's such a lack of acknowledgement around colonization and Mm -hmm. i read a report recently that at the time when the uk had basically colonized the entire world it owned it had invaded to some extent about 90 percent of the landmass or all the countries of the earth at that time and all those countries now speak english in some form or the other or english is part of the Mm -hmm. curriculum and you're taught it from a very early age and then it's astounding that people would say why are they coming here well because you went to them like i'm sorry you and i'm not saying that's an issue that i'm not saying anyone now is to blame for that but i feel like there's such a 
a lack of understanding of historical events that took place that led to maybe conflicts now, even conflicts where the borders were drawn up. Like the current, I can talk about Pakistan, India. When the border was drawn by Cyril Radcliffe, he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't mm. know the lay of the land. And that's been in multiple contexts. Look at Palestine, how it was divided. Mm. We can talk about Iraq. We can talk about the Sunni and the Shia and the Kurds and how everyone is like kind of grouped together ignoring anything. And then we can talk about Afghanistan and, mm. for example, Pakistan. And it's just incredible that no one kind of takes these into consideration. Um but also just it's astounding to be honest and this kind of um because it's not part of their agenda they, they no. it's not what they want to hear um uh, so they just block that out even if it's the truth uh, they just block it out because it's not what they want to hear and we've come unfortunately and it's with great sadness that i have to say this to a point where um people are not willing to be educated they just have this sort of um what goes in goes out sort of so, uh, so to speak whatever is not good it's not fit with my sort of agenda or with my beliefs I'm not going to take that into consideration and not having an open mind to it uh, unfortunately that's the sort of um, environment we we're in at the moment it's true and just kind of expanding on the point of um, kind of a safe and welcoming asylum system for some people that feels like we're saying just never judge have no checks and balances when in fact that's not what people are saying they're just saying Everyone has the right to claim asylum, but also everyone's asylum case should be judged fairly and mm. in a timely manner. And we're not saying people won't be um, found not to be asylum seekers. Like maybe some people have said some stuff, but the vast majority of cases are going to be refugees. They're going to have um, be liable or they should have humanitarian protection. And I think that's also another thing that's very overlooked. No one is saying don't have that system in place or those checks and balances. It just should be fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely, yeah. Just in a couple of words, what would you like people to know about being a refugee? Well, I, I would like them to know that we are human beings and that's, uh, it might sound simple, but uh, many people overlook that. They look at, um, at asylum seekers and refugees as numbers and statistics. And I said this in my speech the other day as well. They are they, We are not numbers and statistics. We are human beings with hopes of a better future. We have they, many, loads of, all of them have dreams and hopes. Um, and they're not here to destroy, your, destroy this country or rape the children or whatever other nonsense that people are saying. Um, 99 98% of the in the in the high 90s i would say people are genuinely here to make a better living and um es escaping from uh, from the persecution in their own countries and nobody would want to leave what they have always known uh, leave the country where they were born where they've lived and where they um where they've made the living for, for all of their lives. Nobody would want to leave that uh, with their loved ones uh, unless it was absolutely necessary. Um, and people forget that these individuals have gone through a sort of um, traumatic journey to get to the UK. There's a whole story behind them even before coming to the UK. So, um, they 
they need to understand that they're, that they're human beings. And I think that, as I said, it's, it's simple, but uh, many people overlook that and say they, it, this, and the other, and trying to dehumanize them and basic, basically strip them of their identity uh, and making them more vulnerable um, than they already are. Um, so that's the message, I, uh, that's an important message I want to get across. Um, and I think it's an important point as well. And they shouldn't blame them, the state this country is in, and they shouldn't buy into this, into the government's plan, because ultimately that is the plan. It's a distraction. And we've seen uh, throughout history that whenever it comes to a general election or close to a general election, if there's nothing else, they go and attack um, the most vulnerable in society. And at the moment, in the current climate we're in, it's the asylum seekers. Um, they're the most vulnerable. They're a good group who can't talk back, who, who can't uh, basically object to anything that's being said against them. Um, what better group to antagonize uh, and put focus on them uh, and distract from what is actually happening behind there's um uh, there's uh, there's um there's not been a um, wage increase there's so many protests i don't know um if you live in london but in london there's been so many protests since the beginning of this year um it seems like there's a protest every week because of wages or working conditions or whatever it is rail strikes teachers nurses doctors going on strike every other week um so distracting from that um and they try to appeal to a certain dynamic, to a certain population within the British uh, population um, and trying to sell their sort of propaganda. Um, uh, and and it's, it's shame, shameful for them to do that um, really for, for people who can't talk back, who don't, um, who are so vulnerable and, uh, and to basically pick on them to show, look, we're doing something about this problem that we have um, without actually tackling the problem that we have, which affects everyone, which affects the majority of the population. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's, it's really disgusting behavior, uh, in my opinion, and in my books. Um, no, so, yeah, so I, I would I would tell people to also wake up and read and and uh, inform yourselves of of what is happening. Don't just believe uh, Jack and Sandy from the from the pub or from Twitter uh, as to what uh, what uh, what has happened. Do your actual research. Speak to a refugee. Speak to an asylum seeker. Ask them about their lives. Ask them about their struggles. Um, humanize them. Because that is a way to humanize them. There's one thing to tweet about something or or, or, or post about something on Twitter or LinkedIn or, or Facebook or whatever about someone, uh, but speak to someone and try to understand them, ask them about their journeys, ask them about why they've come to the UK and understand um, their motives and, um, and uh, have an honest conversation with them. Uh, and I'm sure that uh, if you're not going to be fully... Um, uh, quote unquote converted, uh, I would say that at least you'll have a better understanding and a better sort of um, uh, better feeling towards asylum seekers. You'll be more, I hope, compassionate towards them because each and every person has a unique story um, mm-hmm. that that not many people hear about. 
um, because it's not part of the agenda. They're, they're just, it's disgusting because they're just seen as boat people, you know? Yep. I've seen people refer to them as boat people. That's disgusting. That's, it's so dehumanizing. Yeah, they're, they're not objects. They're human beings. They're, each one of them has a story, has a family, yeah. has hopes and dreams. And to just refer to them as boat people, it's just absolutely horrendous and abhorrent in my books. It really is. And I've seen some cases of, well, people can speak out. And like you're rightly saying, um, near elections, the most vulnerable are vilified. And mm. it's so sad to see. Sometimes I've heard of cases, for example, women are abused by home office. Um, I think it's home office workers or people who go mm-hmm. into asylum accommodations to check if they're um, up to standard and they've been abused by them. And the person will just turn around and say, if you tell anyone, we'll dismiss your case, your asylum claim won't mm-hmm. be processed. And you have them living, you have people living in constant fear and they don't speak out for fear of their asylum claim being thrown out. And they yeah. don't want to go back because they're still in active war and they'll still be persecuted. And it's just, it's very sad that a kind of empathy doesn't exist. And like you are rightly saying about humanizing people, because I feel another thing kind of directly related to it, um, for anyone who's kind of read more around like the 10th stages of genocide, one mm-hmm. of the key elements to genocide is dehumanizing a population to the point that you view them as objects that you view them as people who don't matter like lesser beings that you legitimize a use of violence against them and that should be avoided at all costs mm. so it's it's definitely great advice to kind of go out and speak to people who have this lived experience mm-hmm. and kind of that brings me to my my final question for today um what are some practical ways you can recommend to people to kind of learn more about displacement and to support refugee rights? Well, the best, the best way I would say is uh, because we need, we need to educate. I think that's the main thing that we're missing. Not many people understand. They claim to know a lot about uh, refugee rights and the asylum system, but they really don't. Um, One of the main things I would say is if you honestly want to understand and educate yourself, read on asylum rights, read on the law, read on um, why they, they're coming to the UK and everything rather than just um, because that, that, that's, that's a more effective and productive way in, in helping because uh, it's the fact it's easy to just throw some money and to charity 10 pounds or 20 pounds or whatever and then just being like oh at least i did something but that's in the long run it's not going to do much but like if you educate yourself and you understand the, the the system and the laws and regulations in this land um and you understand the asylum seekers point of view then you can pass that on to someone else and they can pass it on to someone else and then that's how we can have a mutual understanding and a better understanding of 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 this small pocket in in our community um vulnerable community um and and then they can pass on the message and slowly but gradually hopefully um more people will be will be more amenable and 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 understanding of these uh, individuals Uh, and i think that that's a better sort of it's an investment but it's a better way of helping um 
these uh, individuals who are um, who who cannot speak for themselves or um, advocate for themselves. So it's important for us as uh, as um, as the part of the community to um, make sure that we pass on this information to others so that they can understand and and their sort of um, in the state of, uh, of 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 not understanding the system, so which is why I am trying to get the message across and uh, going to these shows and doing podcasts and tweeting about it, um, so that uh, even if I if I make one person understand um, what the difficulties or the um, calamities that these people are facing then I've done my job you know so if we all think like that um then I think as a community we can overcome this and um and actually solve this this issue uh that we have or that the that the Tories claim to have which is this invasion of asylum seekers which I completely disagree with but um for those who want to word it that way um to actually tackle this issue uh, and uh, and and hopefully come to a to a resolution no thank you for that and i think you just touched on this earlier but talk to each other i feel don't get your information from the news or from the media or from politicians talk to each other read about things and go talk to someone on your street ask someone from afghanistan why mm-hmm. they had to flee. Talk to people from Ukraine. Talk to people who had to flee bo- from Bosnia. Talk to people who had to flee from Somalia, from everywhere. Mm-hmm. And obviously in a respectful way, I'm not saying go into streets and randomly accost people, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. in a very respectful way. Uh, yeah, just going can... like, hey, madam, it's like, I'm just going to Sainsbury's to buy some bread. <laughs> like, leave me alone. <laughs> but there's so many books uh, everyone can recommend um, about so many different contexts from around the world of people telling their stories and read them, see what they're seeing versus what the mainstream media and politicians are saying and Mm -hmm. base your views on having all the information, not just half of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, It boils down to the same thing. So education. Um, uh, So you learn something from someone else or you can teach someone else something else that they didn't know about. So it's, it's, it's like a, mutual transaction both ways both of you benefit from it um so yeah that, that's great advice and just on that note i would like to thank you again case for joining us on this podcast and for all the incredible work you've done and if, to all the listeners if you don't follow case on twitter i definitely recommend it he sends out very informational tweets and i would definitely recommend listening thank to you. his protest from this monday's protest in front of parliament thank Uh, you Hira. thank you so much for inviting me and for um for as i said earlier um having me be part of this uh having a small part in this uh amazing work that you do in getting this message across so thank you thank you